This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once received the most Oscar nominations this year, 11, including Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor for our guest, Ki-Hui Kwan. It's his first big role in decades, and he's already won a Golden Globe, a Screen Actors Guild Award, and other major awards for the film. He spoke about the movie and his career with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Ki-Hui Kwan was 12 years old when he first appeared on screen in the 1984 blockbuster Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Wow! Holy smoke! Fast landing! Short round. Step on it! Okie dokie, Dr. Jones, hold on to your potatoes! Driving that car! There's a kid driving the car! After holding his own co-starring with Harrison Ford, Ki-Hui Kwan played Data, one of the kids searching for treasure in the 1985 film The Goonies. He starred in a few other films and TV shows, but when he was in his 20s, the job stopped coming. So he decided to leave acting, went to film school, and started working behind the scenes. He tried to convince himself that he didn't miss acting, but after decades being out of it, he decided to try it again. The first script he read after coming out of retirement was Everything Everywhere All at Once. The film is a family drama masquerading as a sci-fi martial arts movie. It's also an absurdist comedy. It's about Evelyn, a Chinese immigrant played by Michelle Yeoh, totally weighed down by her life and her regret. She's trying to keep her laundromat and her family afloat while being audited by the IRS. Ki-Hui Kwan plays Wayman, Evelyn's husband, who's also trying to keep it together, but is considering serving Evelyn divorce papers. Things start getting strange when Wayman is taken over by another version of himself from an alternative parallel universe. He's here to warn Evelyn of a great evil and to tell her that she alone, this version of herself, is the only person who can save the entire metaverse. I know you have a lot of things on your mind, but nothing could possibly matter more than this conversation we're having right now concerning the fate of every single world of our infinite multiverse. My dear Evelyn, I know you. With every passing moment, you feel you might have missed your chance to make something of your life. I'm here to tell you, every rejection, every disappointment has led you here to this moment. Don't let anything distract you from it. <laughs> Kiwi Kwan, welcome to Fresh Air. Anne-Marie, hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. Let's start by talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. How did you get the role of Waymond? Uh, well, this was... Uh, uh was something that I, I, you know, I, I was so surprised by because it was literally two weeks after I contacted an agent friend of mine and practically begged him to be my agent because, you know, I haven't had an agent for, uh, for more than two decades. And, uh, and when he said yes, uh, I was expecting to, you know, to not hear from him for another six months or a year. Uh, and when that phone rang two weeks, literally two weeks later, and he told me about this project, uh, I was so surprised, but also so happy that, that there was something like this out there. 
and then when I read the script for the first time, I was overwhelmed with emotions uh, because it was a script that I wanted to read for many, many years, and I could not believe that there was this possibility of me auditioning for a role. Uh, it's not a minor role. It's a major role, and it was a role that I, I thought it was written for me. Um, and I was just so excited. Uh, let me take a step back. What made you want to get back into acting after being out of it for um, so many years? Uh, well, you know, for the longest time, uh, when I had to step away uh, because of uh, because of lack of opportunities, I, you know, I thought I buried that acting bug in deep and far uh, that I didn't think I would ever see it again. But uh, over the years, as I was working behind the camera, I noticed that there was a uh, there was a change in the landscape. Um, you know, the Asian actors were giving m- much more medial roles. You know, uh, what I was used to seeing. You know, the stereotypical, the, the marginalized, the butt of the joke characters, uh, no longer uh, what was being offered. Uh, wh- when I saw a television show called Fresh Off the Boat that featured an entire Asian cast uh, on television and, and being really successful that lasted for six seasons. I mean, during that entire time, I, uh, unbeknownst to me, something was uh, missing and that acting bug slowly called itself back to the surface. Um, and I would just hear this little voice in the back of my head saying, Key, you know, maybe it's time to consider doing this again. Uh, and I would entertain it for a little bit, and then I would brush it away really quickly, thinking, that's impossible. Uh, you know, I haven't done this for so long, and uh, and I didn't even know if Hollywood would want me again. Uh, but every time I push that voice away, every time I ignore it, it would just come back stronger and louder until I couldn't, uh, I couldn't ignore it any longer. Now, it had been a while since you were on a movie set as an actor. Uh, what was it like being on set again after such a long absence? And I even read that, you know, uh, after you got the part, you were like a little bit worried about telling people about it because you were worried you'd get fired. Like, What was it like being back there? Well, you know, when I got the job, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell, especially I didn't tell my family. My mom didn't know. My brothers and sisters didn't know. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, when I, you know, when I was preparing to play Wayman, uh, nobody knew except my agent, Jeff Cohen, who is my attorney, and my wife, uh, because I thought I, would, I was afraid that I would suck uh, or that I would get fired the first week into the shooting where the Daniels, you know, think, oh, my gosh, we made the biggest mistake of our career by, by hiring this guy. Uh, and, yeah, so I, I, I didn't know, but um, when it was, I remember... Holding the script uh, in my hand, and it was, you know, and it was this tangible evidence that I was going to do this again. I was overwhelmed with emotions. Uh, and stepping in front of the camera for the first time after 20 years away, uh, I felt alive. I felt whatever that was missing all those years. Uh, and I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. Uh, all of that was gone. Uh, all of a sudden, I felt like I was back where I, 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 I needed to be. 
Do you know what it was? Like, can you articulate? Like, do you know what it was that felt like home? Like, what the feeling was that you had been missing? Uh, you know, I, I think it stemmed from the fact that when I had to step away in my, in my, uh, when I was so dispirited, I should say, or disheartened, uh, because I, I, you know, those opportunities dried up. I spent a long time lying to myself that acting isn't fun anymore. You know, in fact, when I actually stepped away and started, you know, going to college and start working behind the scenes, so many people have come up to me and said, how come you don't act anymore? Uh, and I would say, and I would say, well, you know, because I, I, I don't enjoy it anymore. My, my heart is behind the camera. Uh, and that was my that was my answer, and and I thought that I've said it enough times where I actually believed it. I I, I didn't think I love it anymore, but of, you know, of course, that wasn't true. Uh, acting was something that I I love all my life, uh, and I guess when I I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how to explain. It. I guess when I stepped in front of the camera again, I just felt. It was, I, I felt like I was at home. I was comfortable. I, I felt like I was a kid again. Uh, all you know, the what I was feeling, what I was feeling when I was a little kid, on the set of Indiana Jones, on the set of The Goonies, all those feelings came rushing back, and uh, and 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 that's why everything felt so familiar to me. Now, you and your fellow cast members have to play so many different versions of these roles. You know, at times you were kind Wayman trying to keep the business and the family running, sad about his marriage. Then you're also Alpha Wayman, this strong fighter who's trying to save the the universes. And in another timeline where Evelyn and Wayman don't escape to the U.S. or don't go to the U.S. together. Evelyn becomes a martial arts movie star, and they use actual footage of Michelle Yeoh's real life for that. And Wayman's, you know, a romantic leading man. That universe seems very inspired by Wong Kar Wai films. Um, This is sort of a technical question, but how did you keep all those different Waymans straight? Um, Because sometimes it was like you were shooting a scene and had to play all the versions of Wayman in the same sequence. Yeah, I, I was very lucky. When I was preparing for this role, uh, I came across an interview that Margot Robbie did. Uh, and she was talking about how, like, for every movie she does, she always hires a body movement coach. Uh, and his name was, you know, his name is Jean-Louis Rodriguez. And to help her discover her character... And it's through this technique called the Alexander Technique. Um, and I, so I read that article and I was fascinated by it. Uh, and, I, you know, up until then, I never heard of, you know, there was an actual coach that teaches you how to move. And so I, I, I got lucky and I got in touch with, with you know, with this uh, body movement coach, Jean-Louis. And we had numerous sessions and, he, and it was fascinating to me because the process starts with him you know, reading the script and then picking a very specific animal for me to do. Uh, for example, uh, tax Wayman, he would <laughs> pick a squirrel. Uh, CEO Wayman, he would pick a fox. And then Alpha Wayman, he would pick an eagle. 
And my homework was to spend a lot of time on YouTube, looking at various uh, uh, videos of these three different animals. And I spent a long time just just watching videos of squirrels, and and I even printed out pictures of different looking squirrels and looking different looking eagles and foxes, uh, and I would just you know tape them on the wall. Uh, that was the very first step that I did to get to help myself get into these characters. And then for the emotional aspect of it, you know, I grew up in a, in a very traditional Chinese value family where we were taught from a young age to internalize a lot of our emotions. Uh, even like during those tough times, I never shared it with my family. I was always in my room by myself and, and just, you know, um, feeling miserable because I wasn't working most of the time. And all those feelings that I had that was that was locked up. Uh and I knew that if I were to be to play these characters, I would have to be very honest with myself. And second, I need to let those feelings out. And that's what I did. I spent a long time persuading myself to open that door. And that was the only way I can play him. You have a lot of great fight scenes in this movie. The first one that you do, uh, you unexpectedly fight off guards with a fanny pack. Um, and it's not like a chic fashion fanny pack. It's like a corny, sensible fanny pack that a dad would have. Um, it's an example of something that happens throughout the film, which is like using something mundane um, and then making it elevated, like doing something major with something unexpected, just kind of like your character, Wayman, um, who's more than he seems. Uh, did that appeal to you, like the way your character got to play against expectations? I I loved it. That's why I think the Daniels are geniuses. <laughs> uh, you know, who would have thought that a fanny pack can be a lethal weapon? I mean, you know, I you know, I I watch Jackie Chan movies a lot. I've seen every single one of his movies, and you know, and he's really good at like using you know mundane objects such as like a chair or you know a table and using that as weapons. But never did he ever think about using a fanny pack. Uh, so I thought it was really cool when I read the script. Um, but I was also very nervous because that style of fighting uh, is called wushu rope dart which I know nothing about. I studied Taekwondo for many years. I'm very good with, you know, punches and kicks. Uh, but that I know nothing about. So I had to train with the martial club boys, Brian and Andy Lay. I trained with them for weeks to and, and it was a you know, it was a style that's very hard to master. Uh and I could never I could never do it even though we were training for weeks and I knew that on the day of the shooting, we do not have the the luxury of, of doing many, many takes until we can get it right. Uh, I was told from the very beginning by the Daniels, I says, Key, we only have one day. We can only afford to do no more than two or three takes per shot. And, um, and they had like a shot list of like 60, 70 shots that we have to get through that day. Uh, so I trained really hard. And there was one particular sequence that I could never do it all in once, which is at the end of the fanny pack, where you see me, you know, twirling this fanny pack around my neck, around my shoulder, and then at the very end, you see me kick it and it fly towards the camera, uh, and that was all done in one shot. Uh, and and when the, when the time to do that, the first take I failed miserably, and I look over to Daniels and I see this, you know, very like 
you know, disappointed look, knowing, oh my gosh, uh, we're in trouble. Uh, and then take two, I heard the camera roll. I heard action. And I started swinging the fanny pack around my shoulder, my neck. And finally, the very last piece of, of that, uh, of that, of that uh, move uh, where I kicked the fanny pack and I see it almost in slow motion fly out. And I was just so overwhelmed with joy. And I hear everybody clap and applaud it. And it was a great feeling to, to be able to do that in two takes. Uh, and to turn out as well as it did, really, that was, you know, that was to the credit of, of the entire team. So many people are moved by this movie, and I think for immigrants or children of immigrants, it's particularly moving. You know, for Evelyn and Wayman, like a big fork in the road was that their decision to leave home and immigrate to the U.S. And I think for a lot of people who choose to immigrate, like to leave their homeland, like that's what it's like. It's that big decision, that big fork in the road. Um and I think about the choice that my parents made to do that and how their lives would have been different if they didn't or how it would be different for me and how they made those decisions. It's 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 such a hard one. Did you think about that with your family, you know, your family immigrated? Did you ever talk to your parents about those decisions? Oh, I, I think about that all the time. Absolutely. In fact, you know, I, I that's why I think my parents are heroes uh, to – to make that difficult decision to leave home and to bring our entire family to a foreign land where, you know, uh, they don't speak the language and they have to, especially my parents, they gave up everything they had to get all of us here. It was such a selfless decision because they're not doing it for themselves. They did it for us so that we can have a better future. Uh, and, and I saw them struggle when they got here. Uh, I, I, you know, they were in, my dad was in his fifties. My mom was in her, you know, in, in her forties. Uh, and I saw them struggle with the, you know, with the language, of course, um, and not knowing, uh, you know, what, you know, uh, they, I mean, they, you know, they, they had, my parents were, were quite successful. You know, my dad was a businessman in, in Vietnam. Uh, and my mom had her own clothing store. Uh, so they, you know, they made decent money and they gave all of that up. So by the time we got to the United States, they were heavily in debt. Uh, and so they would have to just, you know, uh, do any job they can that was being offered to them to put food on our table. Um, just so that we can have a better future. I mean, that's crazy. It's so noble what they did. Uh, and that's why when I, you know, as fate would have it, when I landed my first job working with, with Spielberg and Lucas in Indiana Jones, uh, I felt so proud because for the first time in my life, rather than taking something from them, I felt that I can give something back. Uh, and make them proud, you know. We're listening to the interview Ki Hui Kwan recorded with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. He's nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his role in the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. He'll talk about fleeing from Vietnam with his family as a kid, living in a refugee camp, then coming to the U.S., 
being cast in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom at age 12, and more after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Hi, this is Molly C.B. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air. If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people who help make the show. You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show. Imagine an email you enjoy getting. To subscribe, go to whyy.org slash Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I am Terry Gross, back with more of our interview with actor Ki Hui Kwan. He stars as the metaverse-traveling husband in the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. He started acting as a kid in the 1984 film Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. When he was in his 20s, he stepped away from acting after not getting any jobs. He worked behind the camera on stunts for films like X-Men and as an assistant director for Wong Kar Wai. But after seeing more Asian-American actors getting roles in films and TV, he decided he wasn't done with acting and decided to try again. Within weeks, he was called to audition for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Now he's won many awards for Best Supporting Actor for his role, and he's nominated for an Oscar. Let's get back to the interview he recorded with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. You were born in Saigon um, to a big Chinese family, and... Uh, your family decided to leave Vietnam, and you had to split up. Your mom took three kids, and you and the rest of your siblings traveled with your dad. Uh, do you know why your parents decided to leave and split you up that way, that that was the best way to do it? Well, because that was our second attempt. Our first attempt, we all left together, and uh, and we got caught. And we were jailed, and then we were released, and... My parents lost everything because it cost a lot to get all of us on a boat. And so then they, you know, they worked really hard and they saved up enough money to make a second attempt. Uh, And when that opportunity came, they decided that it would be better if we were to split up. Uh, The chance of one of us making out is a lot higher. And then whoever would, would be able to, you know, immigrate to the United States would help the rest of the family uh, to come over. Uh, that was the reason behind it. So my mom took three of my siblings. She went to Malaysia. Uh, and then my dad with my five other siblings, you know, we got on a boat with 3,000 other refugees. Uh, and we went to Hong Kong. And I remember when we were... At the shore of Hong Kong, the local government didn't know what to do with us because they've never seen so many refugees. And, you know, we were on a boat for almost a month before we were allowed uh, to come on land. And, uh, and, you know, they put all of us in this makeshift uh, refugee camp. And I was there for an entire year, separated with my, with my younger brother, who is my best friend. And, uh, and that, was, that was a really tough time. The family was reunited in Los Angeles in 1979. Um, What was that like when you all got together and then you settled in L.A.? Well, for me, I was I was so happy because, uh, you know, I reunited with my with my younger brother. This is after a year of not not being able to see him uh, reunited with my mom. Uh, We rented this house that was three bedroom. 
and so the eleven of us total cram into this little house in Chinatown, Los Angeles. I still, you know, sometimes I still drive by it. Uh, just you know, just for nostalgia's sake, it's a different house. They tore down already, and they built they built a new house over it. Uh, but that that was you know that was a really nice and, and memorable period of my time. Uh, and you know, sometimes it doesn't take much to be to be happy. And that was a that was a time where I was really happy. Now, your first acting role was in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Um, in 1983, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were looking for a kid to star as um, the sidekick of Indiana Jones. And um, you got that role. Can you tell us that great story about getting that role? Yeah, well, you know, Spielberg and Lucas, they were looking for uh, uh, a Chinese kid to play short round. Uh, and they went everywhere. They went to New York, London, Singapore, Hong Kong, San Francisco even. Went everywhere, could not find it, almost gave up the role. When, uh, thank God to the casting director, Mike Fenton, who suggested that we have, an, you know, that they would have an open call in Chinatown, Los Angeles. And I mean, you know, this was like 1983. So there was a very small Asian community living in Chinatown at that time. Uh, and they went to my elementary school, and they passed out these flyers, you know, asking the teachers that, you know, if you have any students that fit this description, can you please send them in? We would love to interview them. Um, and my brother's teacher thought he was, you know, he, he was perfect for the role. Uh, so he went to audition, and I tagged along. And uh, And as he was... Auditioning, I was behind the camera coaching him what to do. I, I had no idea why I was doing that because I didn't even know what was going on. But I was just, I was just telling him to do this, to do that. Uh, and the casting director saw me and asked if I wanted to give it a try, and I did. And the very next day, we got a call from Steven Spielberg's office. Uh, and my mom, you know, thought it was a really fancy meeting because, you know, she heard Hollywood, big director, big movie star. Uh, and she, you know, she had me uh, wear this, you know, really uncomfortable three-piece suit that, that she bought uh, in Chinatown, again, that I would wear during Chinese New Year. Um, and yeah, and I, I looked really uncomfortable, Stephen took one look at me, gave me a hug, and asked me to come back the next day and wearing something really comfortable. And I did. Walked into the room, and there was Harrison Ford, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg. Uh, we spent an, after, you know, an afternoon together. And three weeks later, I was on a flight to Sri Lanka uh, and walked on set for the very first time. Uh, and that changed my life. Uh, there was also that movie... That made me fell in love with, with this industry, with acting, um, and it changed my family's life. Because uh, then now I was able, you know, Spielberg and Lucas, honestly, they were so generous. I was able to make a lot of money at that time to help my parents pay off their debt, uh, and then also to be able to buy a house for my family to live comfortably in. Now, you said you hadn't really seen many American films before you got cast in this movie. You didn't know who Steven Spielberg or Harrison Ford were. 
It's funny that it wasn't, you know, seeing films that necessarily made you want to be an actor. It was actually doing it and, you know, the acting and being on set. Um, And the movies that you made early in your career are these like adventure carnival ride type movies, you know. I'm not sure what it felt like filming, but like in these movies, there are water slides and roller coasters. It's just like this, you know, this like adventure. I don't know if that's what it felt like filming them. Oh, absolutely. It felt like you're going to a theme park every day. You know, with like Indiana Jones, the roller coaster, uh, uh, Goonies, water slides, like your pirate ships. You know, we didn't have the luxury to be able to go to Disneyland when I was a kid. So that was Disneyland to me. Uh, and it was just, it was just so much fun. Your second film was the Adventure Kid movie. The Goonies, um, an important movie for some of us of a certain age um, who grew up in the 1980s. It's from 1985, and it's about a group of kids that are friends who have to move because a rich man in their town is buying all of the family homes to build a golf course. Um, The kids find a treasure map and go on an adventure to find pirate gold to try to save their families. They go through all these trials, and they actually find the treasure while also being hunted down by these evil crooks because, you know, of course, it's an adventure, so they have to be being hunted down. Um, I want to play a quick scene. Um, The kids have found the treasure and are filling their bags with gold and jewels um, when the bad guys find them. Um, We'll hear the main kid first, played by Sean Astin. I got an idea. What is it? What? I saw this on the Hardy Boys once. We can leave a trail of jewels into one cave. Uh huh. And then we can hide out in another. Uh-huh. And when the Fratellis go into that cave, then we can make a run for it. Now that sounds like a great idea. Yo, outside. Okay, this is war. Don't change it. No, I said outside. Come on. We would not be taken alive, Mikey. We, what do you mean, we? That's a scene from the 1985 oh, that film Goonies. So that is so good. I haven't seen the movie for a while. The music, uh, uh, again, it brings back so many good memories. I, I can see the scene uh, as I'm hearing it. Uh, it's great. Wow. That's, you know, working with Sean Astin and, and uh, Josh Brolin. Uh, it was, you know, it was, the first, it was the first movie for a lot of them. Uh, ah, so fun. Uh, you play the character Data, who was an inventor who made these contraptions that fought off bullies. I'm wondering if you ever had wanted to use those contraptions when you were a kid. Like, did you ever have to fight off bullies? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's what's so great about that character is, is all these gadgets. I remember the very first time I heard the pitch from Steven Spielberg. Uh, I was doing press for uh, Indy, and he says, Key, I got your next movie. Uh, you play this character named Data, and, uh, and he has all these gadgets, but none of them work unless if your life depends on it. Uh, and sure enough, you know, a few months later, I was on a set with all these, you know, with all these kids uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, and all these wonderful gadgets. Uh, they're so great. Um, no, I didn't, I didn't have to, 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 to think about using any of these gadgets in school. Uh, I was I, w- I wasn't bullied. I think it was because of uh, you know when I was very young. I you know people recognized me. I you know I already did um, Indiana Jones, uh, so so all you know all my classmates know who I am. Uh, they, they, you know they 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 were very nice to me. 
Let's take a break here and we'll talk some more. My guest is Ki Hui Kwan. His films include Indiana Jones and the Temple of Dune, The Goonies, and Everything Everywhere All at Once. For that film, he's already won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor, and he's also received the Oscar nomination. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. I read that after you made Everything Everywhere All at Once, you couldn't find work again for a year. And, you know, we should remember that you finished filming that movie. Was it at the beginning of 2020 or the end of 2019? Yeah, beginning of 2020. Yeah, so, you know, then the pandemic started. Um, things were shutting down. But uh, you, you've said that you felt like you had that feeling that you had back when you weren't getting roles in your 20s um, and that you lost, you you were maybe going to lose your health care or you lost your health care and that you had that that familiar feeling again. That must have been so hard. You had just made this great, you know, had this great experience back on set and then um, you were waiting for the movie to come out. You know, we shot the movie in 2020. 37 days out of 38. So we were shut down with one more day to go. Mm. Uh, and then we didn't regroup until eight months later, and we finished the movie. And I was like everybody else, uh, staying at home, trying to be safe. And uh, things were very different this time around. As for me as an actor, uh, there were a lot more opportunities. So my agents were sending me audition opportunities where I was recording myself at home and sending in self-tapes, and I was doing that uh, a lot, but also not landing any job. I could not get one job, I kid you not, and uh, not even a callback, in fact, and, and I, was, I was scared all of a sudden because I thought everything everywhere was a one-time thing, and, and it, 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 you know, it, made, it brought me back to those times when I was in my late teens and early 20s where I was auditioning and not landing anything. Uh, I lost my health insurance. And uh, I even joked with the Daniels, and I said, Daniels, uh, you know, one, no one wants to hire me except Spielberg, Lucas, Wong Kar Wai, <laughs> and the Daniels. Uh, they had a good laugh. Uh, and I, you know, I had a conversation with our producer, and I said, you've seen the movie. Am I any good? And he says, Key, trust me, you're really good in this movie. You just wait. Uh, and sure enough, our movie came out in March of 2022. And my world changed. Uh, the first phone call I got was from uh, a wonderful... Uh, uh, producer I met on the X-Men. He was an associate producer at that time, and he is Kevin Feige. Uh, <laughs> Who is master of me? the Marvel Universe, we should say. Yes, he, he, you know, he, he's the, he's the, he runs Marvel. Uh, and he called me and he said, you know, I, um, I saw your movie. Uh, you're great in it. And, uh, and I want you to come join the MCU family. And I was just so happy. And then when I got that phone call from Kevin, I, I got so emotional. Uh, and then after that, I called the Daniels right away. He says, Daniels, I said, listen, you know, nobody wants to hire me except Spielberg, Lucas, Juan Kawai Daniels, and now Kevin Feige. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and they were really happy for me. 
Um, last month, you won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor for your role in Everything Everywhere All at Once. And you gave this great speech. Um, I wanted to play a little bit of it back right now. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I was raised to never forget where I came from and to always remember who gave me my first opportunity. I am so happy to see Steven Spielberg here tonight. Steven, thank you. Uh, When I started my career as a child actor in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I I felt so very lucky to have been chosen. As I grew older, I started to wonder if that was it, if, if that was just luck. For so many years, I was afraid that I had nothing more to offer, uh, that no matter what I did, I would, I would never surpass what I achieved as a kid. Thankfully, more than 30 years later, two guys thought of me. They remember that kid, and they gave me an opportunity to try again. That's an excerpt of Key's Golden Globe speech. It's great that Steven Spielberg happens to have a film out this year, too, so he can be in the audience with you at all of these events. Oh, my gosh. That was, that was such a memorable night for me. Uh, you know, during this awards season, um, I, I wanted, you know, the, the one person that I really wanted to see was, was him, was Steven. And we kept missing each other. He would go to an event where I, I, I didn't go, and then I would go to other events where he didn't go. And it just so happened to be at the Golden Globes where we reunite in person. I haven't seen him like maybe in 12 or 13 years. Uh, we saw each other during the pandemic over Zoom. We had like a Goonies reunion on on Zoom, but not in person. And when I found out that he was going to be there, he was nominated. Of course, you know, having him won and I won, it was it was so special. And to be able to to look him in his eyes and to thank him for everything that he has done for me, you know, that not only that first opportunity, but also, uh, you know, he changed my life. Uh, that was that was really special. And, uh, you know, I, I, after I won, I, I went back out and I gave him a big hug and I, and I said, Stephen, I hope I make you proud tonight. And, uh, and he says, Key, you made me proud when you were just 12 years old. Uh, and it was just so good to give him that hug. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, he, he means so much to me. I I love him so much. Well, it's nice that you're both getting acclaim this year for the movies, the particular movies that you made, because I think they're both very moving personal movies. It's really special because like during this entire journey, for me, I've been very honest, uh, uh, and, and, you know, to the point where sometimes it scares me. So I, I've been very personal sharing my, my struggles, sharing my story. And, uh, and at the same year where he basically shared his childhood, 
with the world. And how cool is that, huh? That, uh, that both of our movies are being recognized. Uh, wow. I will always remember this year. Such a special year for me. Ki Hui Kwan, thanks again for joining us, and congratulations on all of your success. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time chatting with you. Ki Hui Kwan spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. He's nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his work in the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Next, he stars in two TV shows, Loki and American-Born Chinese. They both premiere later this year. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the Irish film The Quiet Girl, which is nominated for an Oscar for Best International Feature. This is Fresh Air. Paul Mescal, one of five Irish actors nominated for an Oscar this year, recently made headlines by giving a red carpet interview in Irish, which is considered one of Europe's most endangered languages. As it happens, the much-acclaimed drama The Quiet Girl recently made Oscar history by becoming the first Irish-language production ever to be nominated for Best International Feature. It's now playing in U.S. theaters, and our film critic Justin Chang has this review. The late film critic Roger Ebert once wrote, What moves me emotionally is more often goodness than sadness. It's a sentiment I've always shared, and I thought about it again while watching the beautifully crafted Irish drama The Quiet Girl. There is plenty of sadness in this tender story about a withdrawn nine-year-old who spends a fateful summer with two distant relatives. But the movie, adapted from a Claire Keegan story called Foster, doesn't rub your nose in the character's unhappiness. What brought me to tears more than once was the movie's unfashionable optimism, its insistence that goodness exists, and that simple acts of decency really can be life-changing. The story is set in 1981, although given the remoteness of its rural Irish setting, it could easily be taking place decades earlier. The dialogue is subtitled, because the characters speak mostly Irish, a language we rarely hear in movies. The quiet girl of the title is named Cot, and she's played with aching sensitivity by a gifted first-time actor named Catherine Clinch. Cot is the shyest and most neglected kid in her poor farming family. Her short-tempered mother has her hands full taking care of Cot's siblings, and her father is a gambler, a philanderer, and an all-around lout. At home and at school, Cot does her best to stay under the radar. It's no wonder that the first time we see her, the camera has to pan down to find her hiding beneath tall blades of grass. With too many mouths to feed and another baby on the way, it's decided that Cot will spend the summer with relatives. Her mother's older cousin, Eileen, and her husband, Sean, live a three-hour drive away. They're played wonderfully, by Carrie Crowley and Andrew Bennett. From the moment Eileen welcomes Cot into their house, she lavishes the girl with kindness and attention. She engages her in conversation, involves her in household chores, and responds in the most loving way when Cot wets the bed on her first night. Sean is gruffer with Cot at first, but he warms to her soon enough. There's a lovely little moment when, after angrily scolding her for wandering off by herself, Sean silently leaves a cookie on the table for her, an apology extended entirely without words. In their way, Eileen and Sean are as reserved as Cot is, especially compared with some of their cruel, gossipy neighbors. 
One of the most refreshing things about The Quiet Girl is that it doesn't treat silence as some problem that needs to be solved. When someone criticizes Cot early on for being so quiet, Sean gently defends her, saying she says as much as she has to say. And yet we see how Cot gradually flourishes under her guardian's loving attention. Clinch's luminous performance shows us what it's like for a child to experience real, carefree happiness for the first time, whether it's Eileen offering Cot a drink of crystalline water from the well near their house, or Sean pressing a little pocket money into the girl's hands. Sean and Eileen are clearly delighted by this temporary addition to their household, in part because it chases away some of the sorrow they've experienced in their own lives. The source of that sorrow isn't made clear right away, though you'll likely figure it out if you're paying close attention. When the truth does come out, it's treated with a gentle matter-of-factness that, much like the unfussy natural beauty of Kate McCullough's cinematography, deepens our sense of immersion in these characters' lives. The Quiet Girl was written and directed by Colm Barade, an Irish filmmaker whose background is in documentaries. That may account in part for how exquisitely observed his first narrative feature is. Barade trusts the power of understatement, and that's a rare thing, given how prone so many films are to noise and over-explanation. Not many movies would focus on a character as unassuming as Cot, but there's nothing small or insignificant about her story. Sometimes, it's the quietest movies that turn out to have the most to say. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed The Quiet Girl, an Oscar-nominated film from Ireland. Because of inflation and other economic problems resulting from the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, you've probably been hearing a lot about the Federal Reserve. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about what the Federal Reserve is, what it does, and why inflation is a problem these days. Our guest will be Gina Smilek, who writes about the economy and covers the Fed for The New York Times. In a new book, she says, yes, the Fed is powerful, probably even more powerful than you think. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. My thanks to the awesome Dave Davies for hosting last week while I took the week off. I'm Terry Gross.